Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Danielle Nishida. I'm joined today by Lori Hatton-Boyd, and today we're discussing the second draft of the Form W-8IMY that was just released this past week, and the updates regarding the new CRS compliance forms now in the Cayman Islands and in Bermuda. So we've gotten some updates, updated FAQs in the Cayman Islands, and Bermuda's issued a new form that's going to be due this year. So to get us started, Lori, can you walk us through what you've noticed in this second draft that we've received of the Form W-8IMY and the additional instructions? Sure, Danielle. So as Danielle said, we received updated draft forms for the W-8IMY and the company instructions on September 22nd. So we did have a couple changes that were obviously made by comments that were provided to the IRS. So you can see, as we had indicated on the last podcast, that they are very keen on on getting these out very quickly. The new form or the new draft form did have that October 2021 revision date, so they didn't change that. And so again, just reminding everyone, the rule on the use of new versions of forms is that the withholding agent must begin using the new version on the later of six full months after the revision date or the end of the calendar year, the new version is issued. So given that language, that would leave us with mandatory use on May 1st, 2022. The only thing I would caution there is the rule in the instructions to the requester say, unless there's a certification on the new revised form that would be needed for the transaction. So we have the delay in the 1446F requirements for publicly traded partnerships, but a withholding agent may be making payments on non-publicly traded partnership transfers in which those new certifications would be needed, in which case you would need to use the new form prior to that date. So just going over some of the changes, there's really not a lot, but some is significant, one in particular. So we did have an update to the line 14 QI certification. They added a bullet for those disclosing QIs that they're passing up the documentation. So again, just a quick reminder, for 1446A or F purposes, a QI can not assume withholding responsibilities, but also would disclose their underlying owners, which is contrary to the normal QI agreement. In that case, the upstream broker would withhold and report on behalf of the QI. The more significant change here was with respect to line 21F. That's actually a new certification, and it's for non-withholding foreign partnerships and non-withholding foreign trusts. And it makes clear, Danielle, what you were talking about the last time, where there may have been some confusion, whether those flow-through entities could also use that alternative withholding statement. And adding this new line and checkbox just solidified what your belief was that, yes, in fact, they can. And that was just an oversight on that prior draft form. And then the last thing I just wanted to talk about with respect to this is that change in the reporting where an NQI could actually pass up the underlying owner documentation for purposes of 1446F. Again, the broker that's receiving that that information would still have to impose the maximum amount of withholding, notwithstanding the status of the underlying owners, but that broker would then report on behalf of the NQI. The interesting thing here is the rules require that the broker agree 
to take on this reporting obligation, which is very different than normal NQI rules where an NQI passes up all of the proper documentation and allocation and the upstream broker would be required to report. And it's interesting because these change in reporting rules would require that broker that agreed to provide the NQI with the forms 1042S that it had submitted to the IRS on behalf of those underlying owners. So that would give the NQI what it needs to know that the reporting was actually done. The problem would be if the reporting wasn't done, that NQI is not going to know it until it's already too late and they would have to be filing late forms 1042S. And I think because of that, it's going to be really important that if you are an NQI wanting to pass up your documentation, which I presume most NQIs would want to do because NQIs aren't generally in the business of doing 1042S reporting, it's important that that NQI get some sort of affirmation and writing from the upstream withholding agent that they're agreeing to do this. Because otherwise, as Lori said, you're not going to know whether they've agreed or not until you potentially get a 1042S issued to an unknown recipient. But at that point, it's probably going to be too late because your filings will be late. The other thing is from the perspective of the upstream withholding agent, this is something you should be considering as a policy, whether you're going to want to be accepting the beneficial owner information from the NQIs where you do the reporting through. I think generally it's a more efficient process if the upstream withholding agents are doing this, but it might be something you consider adding that language to your agreements or having some sort of standard language that you could provide to the NQIs indicating that you're agreeing to do this. Because otherwise doing this on a piecemeal basis is going to get really difficult and really cumbersome. And we asked the IRS about this, you know, why it just wasn't mandatory. And they pointed out that there was a limit of what they could do in the form instructions because the form instructions have to follow what's in the regulations. They can't conflict with the regulations. And the regulations as drafted don't allow for the pass-through of information. So they could make it optional in the form instructions, but they can't mandate it. And so that's the reason we sort of have this clunky process. Until those regulations are changed, if they are, this is a process that we're going to be stuck with. And so the industry is going to have to come up with a solution. And I think having standardized language in the agreements would help this. I think that makes the most sense because, you know, currently they've been doing this for so long, it's a seamless process. And now we have this additional hoop to jump through. That's a critical hoop because if if you don't have that, you know, you're going to have problems with the reporting. So they've got to have something where it's more automated, like you suggest, where it's right in the the contract language instead of having to have these separate standalone agreements every time the broker is going to be agreeing to this. And I think that summarizes key points with this new draft of the IMY form and instructions. We're going to pivot now to talking about another development with respect to CRS compliance forms. We talked previously in a prior podcast about the Cayman CRS compliance form, and I think anyone who has had a financial institution in the Cayman Islands was dealing with this recently because that deadline was a really big deal. I know there was a lot of heartache in the industry about this. We just thought we were past that and moving on, and now we're hit with another new CRS compliance form from Bermuda. In one sense, you know, Bermuda doesn't have as many financial institutions as the Cayman Islands, so it's not as big a deal. But there are a couple additional things that Bermuda is adding that is making this noteworthy and that is potentially making it a little more difficult to comply with in the Cayman form. But the other thing I want to note is even if you don't have a financial institution in Bermuda, 
you have to wonder whether this is starting a trend. This is you know, now the second CRS compliance form we're seeing, and it does make us wonder, are we going to start seeing more and more of these as time goes on? Yeah, and I think for anybody that's got a global operation, if this is a trend, to have to manage that on a global basis, given how many countries participate in CRS, that would be an enormous undertaking. Absolutely. Okay, so to talk about the details in the Bermuda form, it generally follows the format of the Cayman Islands CRS compliance form, but there are some differences. It's following the format in the sense that you are gathering basic information on the entity, you're reporting numbers of accounts in certain categories. One thing that Bermuda does is they require you to report on excluded accounts. So the accounts that are excluded from the FI's due diligence procedures, that's different from the Cayman Islands. The Cayman Islands had said these are not financial accounts. If they're excluded accounts, they're not definitionally a financial account. So they didn't have you report on those. Bermuda is having you report the numbers of total excluded accounts. They also have you report on non-reportable accounts in the same manner as the Cayman Islands, but it's a little easier in Bermuda. The Cayman Islands form required you to actually differentiate whether an account holder was simply not a reportable person or whether they were from a non-reportable jurisdiction, and you had to parse that out. Bermuda doesn't make you do that. They're going to indicate that if you have both of those scenarios, you're going to click both, but for doing the totals, you can sum them up together. So that makes it a little easier there. One big noteworthy thing that this form does is it has you not only certify that you have written policies and procedures, which we saw in the Cayman Islands, but they are now actually making you upload a copy of your policies and procedures. Yeah, and I think that's a significant departure. And if that's going to be a growing trend, that is going to be a really onerous process. You wonder, you know, are they really intending to review all of the policies and procedures? You know, you doubt that they have enough manpower for that, but they would have them on hand if they have any indication of noncompliance. And obviously, as an FI, you're not going to want to submit policies and procedures to your tax authorities that aren't sufficiently robust. So I think it's going to be really important that people make sure that those are up to date and satisfactory before they would submit them, of course. But then again, as you were saying earlier, if this is going to be a growing trend to have to make sure that all of your policies and procedures are up to date and robust in every single jurisdiction, this is going to be, again, an enormous undertaking. And to be fair, you should have written policies and procedures. They should be up to date. So if you were on top of your compliance, this isn't a huge lift. You've just got to provide them. And there is always the aggravation of providing a set of procedures and now wondering whether somebody's going to review this and find fault with them. And so I think financial institutions may feel a little more exposed. But if you aren't up to date on your procedures and you don't have everything in writing in a format that you're comfortable providing to the government, you've got to get that together very quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the hard area for people is, as you know, Danielle, with all of these rules subject to interpretation and people take differing views on things. And so the concern of giving your written policies and procedures to government authorities, if maybe your interpretation was different than what they think is the correct one, it's out there in the open for them to identify. Exactly. And people have differing views on how detailed your policies and procedures have to be. There are policies and procedure guides that are 100 pages. And there are some where people just did five to 10 pages worth of procedures and they were really brief. And so they may be concerned that submitting a five, 10 page document might subject them to further scrutiny because we don't know what the standards are right now. That's a great point. And that's where maybe the 
banking industries in the locations if and when there is a trend, but certainly in Bermuda, that those FIs might, through those industry groups, get a feel for that so that they aren't exposed if their policies and procedures are quite limited. Okay. And then a couple of other things that they do that is a little different from the Cayman Islands form. They also require you to certify certain pieces of your due diligence. So for example, whether there were TINs collected for all the pre-existing accounts, or if not, there's a certification required that the FI used reasonable efforts to obtain the TINs. The same thing is required for dates of birth for individual of pre-existing accounts. I think because of these certifications, financial institutions should be prepared to evidence that they used reasonable efforts to collect any missing tins and dates of birth. The other certification, which may give some people a little heartache, is there is a certification required that with respect to new accounts, that all documentation was collected within 90 days, and an explanation has to be provided if that wasn't the case. That one technically is just certifying that you are complying with the rules, but I do think from a practical perspective, a lot of financial institutions who weren't able to get documentation the second the account opened and maybe took a little longer than 90 days, but eventually got that documentation in time for reporting. So we're thinking that, okay, we're good. Yes, I didn't technically follow the rules, but I got the documentation. I did all the reporting that was required. Suddenly, those financial institutions may have trouble making the certification and may be required to provide explanations. And I do think that could cause some concern for financial institutions who thought they were in the clear. And then another thing to note on this Bermuda CRS compliance form is they do not currently have bulk uploads available. This may not be as big a deal. It was a huge deal in the Cayman Islands because there's a ton of fund groups in the Cayman Islands. And so doing tens or hundreds of thousands of funds manually was not going to be practical. That may be less the case in Bermuda. But if you have a large number of institutions in Bermuda, that could be a problem. And we don't know whether it's simply not available now and will be available at some point in the future, or whether they're not planning on adding this functionality at all. And so I think the other final thing we should talk about is when is this form due? They are starting this form with respect to the 2020 reporting period. The form due date will normally be September 30th, following the end of the reporting period. Obviously, they're not doing that for the first year. So for the first year, the deadline for 2020 is December 15th. That is also noteworthy because that is not a long ways away. And back to the written policies and procedures point, if you don't think your policies and procedures are up to snuff or you would want to deliver them to the government authorities, you have a very short period of time to update them. And as with the Cayman Islands Forum, this new Bermuda CRS compliance forum must be completed by all Bermuda reporting financial institutions and trustee documented trusts. And I think those are the high points for the new Bermuda Forum. One thing I will note, we did talk about the Cayman Islands form in detail. After the time of our last podcast, the Cayman Islands Tax Authority did come out with new FAQs, and they did actually answer one of the questions we had raised where you have an account holder that is not reportable for multiple reasons, for example, because it's both a non-reportable person and in a non-reportable jurisdiction. The instructions to the form and the FAQ seem to have a conflict in the language, and they have addressed that point to indicate that there is no double reporting required. So that issue has been cleared up. They have also provided additional instructions on a variety of other issues. They provide instructions regarding entities that are treated as investment entities in the Cayman Islands, but that really aren't true financial institutions outside the CRS scope. 
so that they may not have had AML KYC obligations. And they provide additional instructions. Uh, most people have been through these because they've just gone through this Cayman reporting cycle, but we did want to note that there is new guidance out there that is worth taking a look at if you're struggling with completing those forms in future years. And with that, I think that wraps up our topic for today. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to talking with you soon.